I heard a nasty rumor that Steve Timmis said that he played me in squash and spotted me eight points and beat me left-handed. And I wish, wish I could say something about that, but I can't because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and I've carried around a deep sense of shame uh, and have sought out others to comfort my soul. Because for a man that's had 37 surgeries over the last six years to be able to dominate me like that in what in America we would call not a real sport um, has caused me to do some soul searching. So um, love Timis. What a supernatural man, uh, specifically when it comes to squash. Um, so I, I want to dive in. I, I think, man, Peter's just going to so help us here as we roll out. I've been asked by the interpreters to slow down a little bit. Uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do my best, but I'm not making any promises. I get excited and then, but I'm going to do my best to, to move slowly. And so, um, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them. We're going to start in first Peter 12. And then what I want to do is um, read a little bit and talk a little bit about what's going on, and then we'll read a little bit more and talk a little bit right, right up to the very end of the chapter. Um, although I, I don't know that I'm going to address uh, the final greeting itself, although it's, it's rich and there's a lot of good things in there. Uh, I'm more worried about time uh, in, in this space together and what, what I, I want to kind of emphasize in this 45 minutes here to close out um, the conference. So we ended our last session by really kind of dialing into the fact that what Peter has now informed us about ourselves is that we are a new people. And so that means our former allegiances, they are now secondary allegiances. It's not that they're non-allegiances anymore. It's just that they're secondary. So I am a white American from Texas, right? Right. Those are, the, so I am ethnically well, Anglo. Uh, I am a citizen of the United States of America. I am in the greatest state in the United States of America, the state of Texas. Uh, we, have at, we, we have at one point been our own nation. Uh, and so other states will be like, well, we've got beaches, all right? But we've literally had a, our own, we were our own nation once. And so I just think that trumps it, right? I know California likes to run its mouth, but it, it, it actually, right, was Mexico before it came in. It wasn't, right? But we were just Texas. We're like, we're our own nation. I don't have any time. I'm just, this illustration's gone too far. So um, that, that's, those are former allegiances. They are still allegiances. I am still a citizen of the United States of America. I'm still very much uh, living in Texas. However, what I am now is not first and foremost American. It's not first and foremost Texan. It's not first and foremost Anglo. What I am now is first and foremost a part of the kingdom of God. And, and that's true about you and that's true about me. So whatever other allegiances we might have, they are now in Christ secondary allegiances. They are allegiances that must give way to our allegiance to the kingdom 
Uh, and so we are first and foremost kingdom people, regardless of where our life is playing out on the globe. We have been bought with a price. We are his. And that leads me into the other thing that we talked about, that we have not just new, a, a new allegiance, but we, are, uh, we have a new identity in him. And, and this concept of identity in Christ, I, I have found to be one of those shaping, powerful ideas in the Bible that if you give yourself over to meditation and consideration about what it means to have your identity caught up in being a son or daughter of God on high. I think this changes everything about how we approach God, about how we see one another, about how gracious we can be to one another, how you can find the hostility kind of die down in your heart and peace begin uh, to reign, that I am a son of God, beloved by my creator. He is not tolerating me. He is not putting up with me. He does not regret saving me. He does not look at my weaknesses, shortcomings, and failures and wish he could have a do-over or wish he could pick someone else now that he sees me up close, that I am secure in him in a way that nothing on earth Nothing good or bad, no amount of heartbreak, no amount of judgment or misunderstanding can take me out of who I am because I am not ultimately a preacher and I am not ultimately Lauren's husband and I am not ultimately the father of my children. I am all of those things and delight in all of those things as good gifts of God. But all of those things can be taken from me. What cannot ever be taken from me is that I am a son, an adopted son of God on high. He is not just my just judge. He is my loving heavenly father that delights in me and rejoices over me and applauds me and lifts me up and strengthens me. And then from there, I've been given and you've been given a new mission. And this is great news because the mission that you and I have been given is a mission that will not fail. It is the only task given to us that cannot fail because the blood of Christ has purchased its full, its full weight and value in time. So, so it's the one place that we can invest our life where there cannot be failure. Man, I, I just want that to kind of nestle into the deep parts of your soul. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes laments that you could be a very wealthy man who gained the world and yet your son be a fool. So you have to leave all your wealth to a moron. And, and then that moron will blow your wealth and he will blow all that you worked hard to acquire. And, and so Peter is arguing, no, 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 you've got a mission here that cannot, will not fail. It will bring about a reward. It will bring about an inheritance and it is an imperishable inheritance. This, this is the one place that we can give ourselves over to obedience to the God of the Bible on this mission and know our life has not been wasted. Our days have not been wasted. Our efforts have not been wasted and that God is accomplishing his purposes in our lives for his glory and our joy with our radical wholehearted surrender to him wherever we find ourselves. And it's keeping before us, and, and I use the illustration on purpose, it, it's keeping before us that Tim Keller doesn't have a greater reward than we do. Right? That, it, that our reward is not based on books or size or how well known we are. Or how, in fact, you might be able to argue that Tim's reward might be smaller, that, that he, got, he got quite a bit of reward here. 
And, and I think when we get to glory, there are going to be quite a few people that we're surprised and shocked at the size of their mansion and how close that mansion is uh, to Christ's, right? Um, and, and so that's where we, and so what, what's starting to happen now as we get into fours is this knowledge is going to reframe three things that we have a tendency to think one way, and these truths are going to force us to think another way. And it's how Peter chooses to round out the book. It's how the Spirit knew we would need to think in rounding out these ideas. And so here are the three things that in light of what I just said and in light of what we've already covered, uh, the Bible wants to reframe for us. The, the first is um, that the Bible wants us and God wants us then to reframe how we think about and view suffering. He wants us to change, reframe how we're thinking about and view leadership. And then he wants to, as always, reframe uh, how we think about God and, and who he is. And so there, there's, if you're type A, there's my outline, right? You can just write that out and that's where we're going. So we're going to start with reframing suffering. Um, so if you have your Bibles, let's look at this. First Peter chapter four, we're going to start in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, so I want to stop here. The, the Peter is not leaving us guessing at what kind of persecution is befalling the Christians. In fact, we get a pretty clear um, picture of how they're being persecuted earlier in this chapter, specifically in verses 3 and 4. And so why don't we look at this together? For the time that is past, this is verse three, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what we see happening in this text is the power of the gospel has penetrated the souls of believers in the Roman Empire so that they have backed out of the debauchery of the day and that backing out of that refusal to participate in the wildness of the world has caused a great deal of shame and guilt in sinners' hearts. And so those sinners have lashed out against the people of God. What makes this more powerful is what we're seeing in this text is he says, these things, they're in your past. 
And so you're getting this picture of men and women who once had given themselves over to licentiousness and the evils of this world and have met Jesus and have now rejected those evils and are living uprightly according to the law of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as they reject the way of life in their day and live the way of Jesus, it is disoriented sinners. And sinners, not knowing what to do with being disoriented, have begun to verbally attack Christians. We have zero evidence in 1 Peter that these, uh, the persecution they're enduring is violent persecution. Yet yeah, we know it does grow to that. But where, where we see it in 1 Peter, as far as the text goes, right? If you kind of dismiss any other kind of historical data around, we just stay tethered to the text. What we know is they are beginning to receive a wave of verbal persecution, verbal, verbal slander, lies about them. Uh, th and this is affecting deeply uh, their life and their sense of safety. And they're, they're, they feel marginalized and lied about and pushed to the margins because at one point they were a part of these drinking parties and, and orgies and the kinds of licentiousness that are listed here. And Christ has changed them and they've rejected that. And in their rejection of that, they've discombobulated sinners. And when sinners are discombobulated, they will lash out against those who are bringing about, lifting up the mirror to their lives, or they, they will repent. And this is why those who love Jesus, according to the word of God, are either the aroma of life or the stench of death. To boldly live out the Christian faith, specifically as the Spirit of God transforms our lives to look more and more and more like the way God designed the world to work will be to incite sinners to misunderstand and attack or to repent and confess and believe. So, so Peter's trying to orient their hearts around this suffering, which, which, if we're just honest, is much like the suffering we're enduring right now. Many of us are not in context where we're being beaten up or thrown in prison or our life is in danger. Now, some of you are, but for the majority of us, this is exactly where we are in this moment in history. We are maligned. We are misunderstood. We are lied about. I know in America, uh, we are considered bigots and racist. And I mean, there are all these accusations against us that, that aren't true. And yet this is how we're talked about as a lump of people. And this is where most of you are in your context. Because to live out the Christian faith in a secular place is to hold up a mirror to the foolishness of secular reasoning, which will lead to them lashing out or them repenting and believing in the name of Jesus. And so in light of that, Peter starts to try to reframe from them um, what's happening in their suffering. Um, so, so we're seeing in this text that God uses the trials of life to strengthen the character of Christians. And, and so if we just stop and we think about our own experience in being maybe maligned or misunderstood, I, I can speak personally uh, from my own life um, that, it, that it will increase my dependence on God. It will expose in me where I still want the approval of men. Amen. Like when I am misunderstood, when I am maligned, when someone lies about me or twists 
my words. What, what comes up in my heart is, well, I didn't really say, I mean, I, no, I'm a good guy. I'm not. And, and, and what's happening in that moment is, is there's something being exposed in me that is not of heaven. So I then get the opportunity to repent and confess and, and drag those compulsions into the presence of Christ. And yet again, as we already covered, reorient my heart around what is true. We, we also find that this exposes disordered loves in us when we endure this kind of persecution. Um, we, we, we are, our character is shaped and rounded in the furnace of trial. I also want you to look at, look at verse 17 here, uh, because I think verse 17 is important to know. So verse 17 is actually, um, he's actually kind of drawing attention back to Ezekiel. Uh, and so I won't take you back to Ezekiel. I'll let you do that work. But if you look at verse 17, here's, here's what he says. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, what's happening here is this reference to the Old Testament is that when the judgment of God comes, it always comes first to those closest to the temple, right? Who does he always judge first in the Old Testament? The priests, the kings, those who have the responsibility to herald what is true about God and where they forfeit or uh, to use an American football term, punt their responsibility to live out what is true, right, and good, the judgment of God befalls them. And, and so Peter's arguing the same way. Brothers, sisters, hold fast. The judgment of God is at hand, and it's starting with us, with the household of faith. Who will wither in the day of trial? Who will uh, recant on the name of Jesus in the Who will be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the day? And, and so this fiery furnace in first Peter is about God testing our souls, refining our hearts so that we might know and the world might see who actually belongs to him. And, he, and he's making this appeal that they not despise difficult days because God is at work in the mess. And so, although we're prone to despise difficult days, to want them to leave, to want happier days, to want everyone to like us and everyone to understand us and everyone, and if you come across the guys like, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks, he is insecure in his line. Nobody's like, I would really like to be misunderstood and hated. Or at least I haven't met an honest man who would say that. And, and so Peter's here going, don't despise these days. God is at work at the very heart of the household of faith, the spiritual home that we've already covered. God is refining, building, calling up and into glory. His sons and daughters do not despise difficult days. God is at work in the mess. Isn't this the story of the Bible? It's not that it's not messy. It's not that it's not hard. It's not the whole Bible. So like none of this should surprise us, which is why I think Peter begins his argument this way. Don't be surprised when this happens. Pay attention to your Bible. This has always happened. It's just our turn for it to happen to. Right? I mean, come on, like, this is the story of the Bible. Broken people doing broken things in a sinful way and God stepping into the mess and fixing it. And so here's Peter's argument. Here he is reframing suffering. No, life is hard. You have not been forgotten. God is testing your character. He is refining you. Do not despise 
difficult days. He, he goes on to argue that suffering uh, for Christ is a cause for joy. And then he, he makes the distinction that's a really important distinction. Like if you're, if you're being persecuted because you're a murderer or a thief, or, or I love meddler in there, if you just meddle in stuff, if you're always like meddling in everybody's business and people talk bad about you because you're a meddler, he, he's like, I'm not talking. It's good to know that things don't really ever change. All right. Like if you're being persecuted because you're a murderer, a thief or a meddler. I love the lists in the Bible just because he wants to make sure we all know we're guilty. It's like witchcraft, murder, disobeyed their parents. I, I always love kind of just make sure he know everybody's going to know we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Like what is not making my bed have to do with witchcraft? <laughs> Which is the Bible that no, you are rebellious. You're a meddler. And so here in this text, he's saying, no, 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 don't, don't rejoice if you're being persecuted because you meddle in people's business. Don't, don't rejoice if, man, you're being persecuted and maligned because you steal or because you kill uh, or because you're a fool. No, 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 but rejoice if it's because you love Jesus Christ and in your love for Christ, a mirror has been raised and culture has to look at itself and decide whether to lash out against the mirror or whether or not to submit to the truth of God. In fact, this is very much in line with Jesus' teaching on the matter. Uh, Matthew 5, 10 through 11. Now, keep in mind, like, like Peter was at this sermon. All right, so this isn't like he's, like Peter wrote this on, on his little mole journal, all right? His little calm Sermon on the Mount journal that was handed out right before that began. That, like this is what Jesus taught. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely, there it is again, right? Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because if they're saying true things about you, you're just a jerk, then Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Like if you're a meddler, I'm not talking to you. If you're a thief, I'm not talking to you, but if it's false on my account, blessed are you. And the apostles actually modeled this well. After the ascension of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit, uh, the apostles are drugged in front of the council and they're forbidden for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And you've got that great line, judge for yourselves whether we should listen to you or God. But as for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard, right? That, that's that mirror thing happening. And so then they, they were, they were going to put him to death. And then Gamaliel stood up and said, like, whoa, 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 we might find ourselves fighting against God here, right? We've seen this before. And so how, how about we just let them go? And if they're of God, this thing will spread. And if they're not, it'll die out like this one did and this one did and this one did. And then they decided, okay, we won't kill them. But what we will do is we will beat them within an inch of their life and that'll show them. And, and what happens? I mean, you want to talk about this fleshed out, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It, do you remember how they left that beating? The Bible says they left rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the lamb. Like, how do you stop that? If you want to know why Christianity, the more it's hard pressed, the more it seems to grow, because when you beat it, it rejoices. So how do you kill that? Right? Because when you kill it, it grows. And so here, Peter is lining us up with the teachings of Jesus and the example of the apostles. He's reframing suffering. When you're persecuted 
for the name of Jesus. It's because you're living the way of Jesus. Rejoice. You're doing it. Rejoice. When you're misunderstood, rejoice. When they lie about you, rejoice. When they marginalize you, rejoice. Because you're living the way of Jesus. So he reframes suffering, and then he moves on in 1 Peter 5 to reframe leadership. And so let's look at this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so now you've got Peter appealing to the elders, not by, and this is fascinating, not because he's an apostle and has the right to teach this, but he says, hey, I'm a fellow elder. Like, I know what this is like. I have been in Jerusalem. I was on the council at Jerusalem. I, was, I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I know what it's like to be maligned. As a fellow elder, as someone who's been in the room that you're in, I appeal to you. As someone who saw the sufferings of Christ, I appeal to you. And as someone who is a partaker in the glory of God with you, I appeal to you. And here's what he says, shepherd the flock of God. Now, right out of the gate, things are reframed. Whose flock is it? It's not their flock. It's God's flock. Now, this is, I think, imperative for an elder to know, not just in his mind, but like in his guts. I don't know if that's going to translate. Uh, like in the deepest part of who he is, the elder needs to know, these are not my people. These are God's people. And God has commanded me, empowered me, gifted me, and placed me to shepherd his flock. This is not mine. I have been given charge of his flock. So this begins to reframe how we think about and interact with what is God's. Right? You will treat God's stuff differently than you will treat your stuff. In the same way that children will, will treat their stuff when you're paying for it in a very different way than they will when they start paying for it. Right? And so Peter is appealing to them as an elder himself to consider the people of God that they are eldering as not belonging to them. They are not king over those people. They are not to dominate those people. They are not to fleece those people. Those people belong to God. And they have been given charge to shepherd God's flock. And then he, he gets into these three um, kind of do this, don't do this. He, he says, exercise oversight willingly. 
right? So, so willingly. Don't, don't elder because you feel like you have to, right? Uh, elder because it's a call that God has placed on your life and, and you are eager to serve God by loving his people. You are eager to serve God by loving his people. And, and, and that goes right along with the second one. Do it eagerly, not for selfish gain. The leaders of God's flock do not serve because they have to as if it were simply another job, nor do they serve to skim off money for themselves. We never take advantage of the sheep because they're not our sheep. And you don't want to steal from the king's children. It just, just goes bad. just goes bad. And then the last one, of course, is not domineering, but as an example. Um, when I was working on my degree, um, one of my professors said, 10 years into your church, what you don't like about your church is what you shouldn't like about yourself. They will look more and more and more like you, brothers. And so if you are prayerless, your people will be prayerless. If you are silly, your people will be silly. If you refuse to evangelize, your people will refuse to evangelize regardless of what you teach. If you don't make disciples, your people will not make disciples. If you don't, and at the time I was like, I don't think that's fair, I'm not sure that's right. And then about 10 years into the village, I was like, dang it. Okay, Dr. Shields. And, and so you, you must know that, that you are to be an example to the people of God. In the same way, children are born with a built-in hypocrisy meter. If you know that, if you've got children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That first moment where you have to tell your children to quit doing something that you do all the time. Right, you need to stop this. Why? You do it. You know, well, your mother does it. I don't do it, right? It, it, that, that moment, like this is, it, it's very similar. The, the people of your church are looking at the elders as this is the example of, of what the Christian faith is meant to look like. And they will model that. And you can preach, 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 preach something different. But man, if you yourself have not given yourself over to what you know is true in the Bible with your life, not your words, then I'm, I'm just trying to lay before you that you are going to produce what you are. And this is a great burden on the elder to bring himself into the presence of Jesus often, to have his heart reoriented and reshaped by that abiding presence that I called you to in the last session. Uh, again, then he, then he rounds it out again by calling G Jesus the chief shepherd, reminding us that, that we are not the chief shepherd, that even in our shepherding call, we are not the chief shepherd. We are kind of an under shepherd, which is where we get that concept and idea of being under shepherds of the flock of God. I'm not the chief shepherd. I am learning from the chief shepherd how to shepherd. And so he's reminding their hearts that we are fundamentally servants. We're not autocrats. We are servants of the people. That our positions of leadership are a responsibility and not a privilege by which we advance our own status. As shepherds, we serve under the authority of the chief shepherd, doing his will rather than theirs. And, and then from there, he, he moves on. If you want to see it in the text, he, he, he moves on to this idea of, uh, look at verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And, and then he moves on to clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud 
but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, and so there's a lot of conversation. If you did commentary work on this passage, there's a lot of conversation because that younger right there led, has led some people to go, oh, so the elder isn't like a, a leadership position that Peter's talking about. And an elder here is actually just older men in the congregation because he follows it up with this idea of younger then must submit to elder. Uh, now, the problem with that is, is all the shepherding imagery and the use of this word in other texts clearly leads uh, one to believe that, that these are actually leaders in the church. And so he, he then seems to be, he tends to, it appears that he's using the word younger to describe the laity that's underneath the elders in happy submission to their leadership. And, and then what's the word he gives to both of them? Not one or the other, but what does he give to both of them? Clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility. Being an elder or being in leadership in a church, man, it's, it's, it's a difficult calling regardless of context. Um, sometimes the, the sheep are meaner than the wolves. Amen? I mean, sometimes, sometimes the sheep are rabbit. And so that puts us in an interesting space because shepherds aren't usually in the middle with all the happy, well-dispositioned sheep who just love the shepherd and are so grateful for how the shepherd leads them and guides them to clean water and green grass. No, no, no. The shepherd's on the margins where they fight off wolves and wild sheep will oftentimes nip at them. And, and so he's saying to the elder... Clothe yourself in humility. These are my people. I was patient with you. I'm patient with them. I'm going to reveal my patience to them through your patience with them. And he says to the layman, the laywoman, clothe yourself in humility. The argument in another book of the Bible is, in the book of Hebrews, is for them to allow elders to do their job without complaining or making the job difficult because this would be of no advantage to them. And so there's this call for all of us to walk in happy humility, literally clothing ourselves in humility. Why? And this is so huge, because God opposes the proud. The proud lady, the proud elder. God stands in opposition against the proud, regardless of position. So that's important to note, specifically if you're an elder who has a tendency uh, to lean towards where the call of God on our life is to lead and to make this happen. Right? And yet here Peter's going, no, no, no. It doesn't matter where your position is on the org chart. If you're proud, God opposes you, which is something meant to create some introspection in us. I mean, we, we don't want God to oppose us. And yet, there it is in the text. So, so leadership is about servanthood. Leadership is about serving. Leadership is about being an example. Leadership is about fending off wolves and from time to time being bitten by a wild sheep. And to continually clothe yourself in humility. Now, this is the opposite of the way the world op operates. Right? In the, the same way that the world thinks about suffering differently than this, the world also tends to think uh, about leadership differently in this. Even, even Jesus is trying to teach his disciples who, who are still arguing. I mean, you want to think about feeling like your preaching is not getting through. 
consider Jesus and the disciples. You ever lose heart and you're like, oh my gosh, I teach on this every week. I can't believe they, they still don't get it. Eight hours a day, you know, 24 hours a day for three years, the disciples are with Jesus and still right before his death are arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. Right? I don't think it's you. And then one of, they got their mom involved. Right? And I don't care what culture you're in, I think that if you're a grown man and your mom is arguing for you, you don't get that chair. Right? Like if you're a 40 year old man, your mom's like, can you consider letting my son sit here? I'm, I'm just saying no and get your moms out of here. Right? And so they're, they're asking you, hey, can we be the greatest? And, and Jesus is like, that's, that's not how we're going to do it. You, you want to be greatest? Great. You're going to serve. You, you want to be at the highest level? Then you become the slave of all. See, this is, again, if we were just talking about the kingdom, I would talk about um, kingdom economics. This is upside down stuff. You, you serve. That's God's call on your life. And then um, from here, he, he, he moves to reframing our posture towards God. And, and we'll pick that up now in verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, does that sound familiar? It should, because that's the way he started the book, that concept of a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this last bit of reframing that's going on, it's not just about suffering, it's not just about leadership, but it's about how we see and think about God being contrasted with our enemy, Satan, in this text. So he says, Here, here's the way to think about God. Here's the way to kind of reframe your understanding about God. Walk in humility. And then I, I don't know that the ESV does the best job of, of communicating what's happening here in the Greek. And he says, walk in humility by casting all your anxiety on him. It's not walk in humility and cast your anxiety. It's how do you walk in humility? How do you know that you actually are humble in heart? Because you cast your anxieties on him. You don't take upon yourself to solve every human difficulty. You don't take upon yourself, I've got to solve this, I've got to make this happen, I've got to push through, I've got to make a way. You don't put on a, a veneer or a mask that you're strong when you're not strong. I mean, this is for pastors, right? You don't pretend that everything's okay when everything's not okay. That's ungodly. Do you hear me? That's ungodly, and you're playing right into the devil's trap for you. Look at me. You are human beings, which means that you are frail and temporary, which means you will get tired. 
You will give into impulses of your flesh. You will grow weary. And none of that is shocking to God. That does not surprise him. He knew what he was buying on the cross. He knew, right? Your weakness is not surprising to him. Your faking strength is offensive. So he's saying, hey, you, you walking in humility? The way you know if you are is, are you casting your anxieties on him? Are you staying up late at night running through all the things that have to happen to make this happen, to make this happen, to make this happen, to ensure this happens so that you don't end up looking like this? Well, then you're not walking in humility. You're walking in your own strength. When you feel weak and frail and like you can't keep moving much longer, do you instead smile and bless his name, brother? Well, then, man, you're not, you're not walking in humility. You're walking in pride. And you're playing into the devil's trap. And, and so the call here, I think this is such a, a beautiful call, is the call is to humble yourselves, casting your anxieties. Why? Look at the text. Why should we feel free to do this? Now listen to it, because we don't tend to think about God in these ways. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he what? What's the text say? Because he cares for you. Why cast our anxieties? Why cast our weakness? Why cast our doubt? Why cast our weariness? Because God cares. Look at me. He is not using you for his ends. He loves you and cares for you and has invited you into what he will accomplish through your weakness, not your strength. We're not building with straw here. Why? Because he cares for you. And then this is put in contrast with the devil's plan for you. So he moves on and says, hey, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I think that word roaring lion is huge. Not just a lion, it's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So if you're following Peter's argument, he's doing this contrast thing here where he says, here's, here's God. He knows you're anxious and he cares for you. So cast those cares on the one who cares for you. And then in contrast, be watchful because you have an enemy and he's trying to intimidate and bully and scare you. And so he roars in the distance. And when you hear that roar, be careful that you don't get all fearful and silent and afraid, but make sure you, with solid, rooted feet in the gospel, stand boldly in the strength of God, not our own strength, and continue to proclaim what is true. Your adversary wants to intimidate, wants to silence wants to have you carrying your anxieties rather than casting those anxieties, wants to cast doubt in your mind and heart about whether or not God actually cares for you. Now, listen to me. Watch, watch how effective it is. When difficulty comes into the life of most believers that I know, it becomes a wrestle to not believe we're being punished for something. Huh? That where our mind tends to go first is I'm being punished for something that we make in our minds dad or our heavenly father to be like this dad that just tolerates his kids. Can't wait for them to get out of the house. 
And that's certainly not the picture in this text. He's a father who cares. And so the roar of the lion would have you second-guessing God's goodness and care for you in the middle of difficulty. And Peter's going, don't, don't do it. Don't give in to that. It's a lie. Stand firm. This is, remember where he started. You, you've been elected. God has chosen you. God picked you up out of the muck of the mud. God delights in you. He adopted you. You are his sons and daughters. This has been Peter's argument. Although God loved you before you had the chance to mess up. Your salvation was solid in Christ before you ever had the chance to be good or to be bad at this or that. So your confidence should be in the electing love of Jesus Christ, not in your capacity to blow it up or be weak or or be foolish, or you, you need to rest in the secure love that Christ has for you and not be intimidated by the roar of the lion. And how can we be so confident? That's a great question. Um, so thanks for asking. It's going to help me into my conclusion. So look there in uh, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. (laughs) So yet again, in light of eternity, all suffering is a little while. All of it. Now, some of us, that little while is going to be in an earthly way of measurement. A little while. It's going to be a a bad week. It's going to be a bad month. It's going to be a bad year, a bad 18 months. Maybe God help us a bad decade. And then we're going to get past it. We're going to look back on it. We're going to go, man, that was bad, but God was good. But, but some people in the Bible, they, they like die in the bad. Like to be sawn in two, for Peter to be crucified upside down, right? That, he, he's not in an earthly way getting to the other side of that going, man, that crucifixion up down there, that was awful, but God was in it. No, but, but where does he then glory? in glory, right? right, To die here in the midst of suffering is to have our eyes awakened to the beauty of Christ moving forward. This is what makes Christians and Christianity so difficult to stop because we believe that to die is gain. So if you really think about it, and again, this is more Pauline than Peter, but, but what can you do to someone whose heart is holy Christ's? Can you torture them? I mean, you can, but it, it actually, if we believe the Bible and the experience of our brothers and sisters, it, it emboldens faith and, and grows their faith. And um, can you throw them in prison? Yeah, but they're probably going to start a ministry in there. I mean, yeah, if you want a prison ministry in your, in your prison, arrest Christians and throw them in there. Are you going to kill them? Well, man, we believe in eternal reward. And we're like, what, what, what are you going to do? Make life hard for us? Well, man, apparently that produces a really beautiful, bold faith among the elect. Now, how can we be confident? Well, again, you're right to keep asking the question. I haven't answered it yet. Second part of verse 10. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, you, you don't need to, I don't think you need to distinguish carefully among these verbs here, right? I, I don't think you have to go, well, here's what he means by restore, here's what he means by confirm. He's going, no, no, Christ has you. Like you, you Christ has you. Who's going to make sure this happens? Christ. 
Christ has paid for you. You are his. He has brought you into the presence of God. You belong to him forever. He will confirm you. He will establish you. He will restore to you. He has not forgotten you. You have not been abandoned. You belong to him. Don't lose heart. You belong to him. And he is accomplishing his purposes. And then he ends the way you have to end on that. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the things, and, and I'll say this and, and pray for us because I'm over. If you really do a study around, um, I'll be careful. I know we're different spots. If you, you do a study, biblical study on demons and demonic principalities, and one of the things that becomes evident is as disruptive as they are, they only serve the purposes of the king. So how great is the power of the king? that the movements and attacks of his enemy actually serve him, right? I mean, how hopeless for demonic principalities that ultimately the more they long to oppress and blind and attack, they simply serve the purposes of our great God and King. I have been unbelievably blessed by my time with you. I'm going home with a full heart. God is on the move. Men and women across the world are coming to know him. Please don't ever buy into the propaganda that the church is shrinking or vanishing. Or we, we have for thousands of years taken the best shots of empires. And when all said and done, for 20 bucks, we purchase a ticket and walk through their ruins. Let's pray. Father, bless these men and women in the name of Jesus Christ. I just ask as they leave this place, they would be emboldened all the more to live out faithfully the call of the gospel on their lives. Just pray that you would, Father, encourage their hearts. Where they've come in weary, might they leave with strength. Where they've come in maybe teetering on whether or not they wanted to move forward or, or, or needed to resign and look for something else. I just pray um, you would, uh, Holy Spirit of God, build them up in love. Let them once again be renewed and reawakened to your kindness and your calling. I ask that in your power, spirit of the living God, you, you would grant to them marvelous, soul-altering hope. Pray even now their mind would be filled with men and women who you are calling them towards, who will believe upon your name. I thank you that in this room right now, there's represented hundreds of thousands of men and women all around Europe who um, years from now will love you and worship you and will spend eternity with us in glory because of the faithful witness of these men and women. They're out there right now. They're not interested in you. They're hostile towards you. They think wrongly of you and your people, and yet you have purchased them with your blood. And so we praise you. Even before we sing, we praise you that the work we are doing and that you've called us to cannot fail, and that Jesus did not die for people who might believe, but he died for those who will believe, and that you have invited us into participating in heralding and finding them is a stunning mercy. So we bless your name. Give us strength for the journey. Love, just that little sentence, because you care for us. Thank you. You're not using us, but rather delighting in us. Help us believe that. It's easy to believe that you forgive us, hard to believe that you like us. Convince our hearts with your word. Convince our hearts by the power of the Spirit. It's for your beautiful name. Amen. God bless.